I love it when Rob reads scripture. I feel like the prophet himself is speaking, don't you? That's awesome. That's awesome. It is so good to be back again. And um, I appreciate the fact those of you here for last week, you came back for more. That's just amazing to me. And a few different ones as well. There is an outline, uh, again, I think in the bulletin, I haven't a chance to see the bulletin, but there's an outline in there, and I want to encourage you to use that and your Bible, uh, because this is Shepherd of the Valley Bible. Bible Church, right? Okay. And so we're going to be studying this passage that Rob just read for us under the heading, Meet Your Maker, and we're looking at God's holiness today. We are going to ascend into the lofties. Are you ready to ascend a little bit today? to kind of get our eyes off of the stuff that's happening in our world and around us that we read about on social media and all of those things that are coming at us constantly and so disturbing, so disturbing to see what's happening in our country and in our world. But today, we're going to go to the lofties. We're going to, as it were in our minds, ascend into the very presence of of God and hopefully get better acquainted with our maker. So I'm going to start with a word association. Remember those word association tests? And I want to hear from you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word holy? What? God? What else? What? Spirit? Blessing? Bible? Purity. Boy, all of those are really good. The word that came to my mind as I was contemplating this was the word white. White. Um, Some of you may remember from school days that white is what you get when you blend all of the colors of the spectrum together. And in the same way, Holiness is the attribute of God, which you get when you combine all of the rest together. The word holy comes out. On top of his omniscience and his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his righteousness, his graciousness, take any of the attributes of God that you want to, and you can put holy in front of them. Blend them all together, and they fit under the word holy, meaning pure completely undefiled. It's his most prominent attribute because this is what, what most impressed those who are privileged, those very few who have been privileged to see God face to face. And so we're going to spend some time today trying to get just a glimpse of the basic idea of what holiness is. And we're going to consider what difference God's holiness, understanding a greater appreciation for God's holiness, can make in our lives and in our quest especially to meet our maker. And so I can't think of a better passage to do that with than the one that was just read for us um, by Rob. And so we're looking at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and we're going to start by thinking about the essence of God's holiness, and the word you fill in there is the word separation. Separation. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God 
Almighty. So the original root of that word holy is to sever. It means to sever, to be disconnected, completely separated. In referring to an incredibly gifted uh, musician, we might say she is a cut above the rest. Sounds like an applin, doesn't it? Cut above. <laughs> Many have described athletes like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers as being, quote, in a league of their own. The idea is that these are the people who set the standard in their area of expertise and the rest of the world gazes at them from a distance. They're separated from the average and even from the accomplished. Their greatness attracts us on one hand. On the other hand, it can be kind of intimidating when you're with someone who sets a new standard for things. Now, those are very pale illustrations when we're talking about the holiness of God, but it's close as I could come right now. By definition, God is in a class all by himself as seen in his exalted position. God's exalted position. Isaiah in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament were given personalized tours of the ultimate throne room. They tried to convey what they saw surrounding God, but it was beyond description. We um, heard Isaiah's attempt earlier in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Now listen from Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, where John, you know, he got that all expenses we paid weekend in heaven, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. And this is the brochure. This is what he described from what he had seen. He said, I was in, in spirit there in heaven and saw, oh, the glory of it, a throne and someone sitting on it, Great bursts of light flashed forth from him as from a glittering diamond or from a shining ruby and a rainbow glowing like an emerald encircled his throne. 24 elders, 24 rather smaller thrones surrounded his with 24 elders sitting on them. All were clothed in white with golden crowns upon their heads. By the way, elders, that's your new style and wardrobe for you. You need to have those white robes and gold crowns. It says that right in the Bible. Lightning and thunder issued from the throne, and there were voices in the thunder. Directly in front of his throne were seven lighted lamps representing the sevenfold spirit of God. Spread out before it was a shiny crystal sea. Four living beings dotted front and back with eyes stood at the throne's four sides. The first of these living beings was in the form of a lion. The second looked like an ox. The third had the face of a man, and the fourth the form of an eagle, with wings spread out as though in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and the central sections of their wings were covered with eyes. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. The splendor surrounding the heavenly throne of God fits his divine nature. He deserves it all, the setting, the surrounding that we see here. The word holy can and should be attached, as I mentioned, to every one of God's attributes, every one that we see, because they are set apart from all the rest. And it's from this exalted throne where God is that he creates and sustains and governs all things in the universe trying to look at it or comprehend it. Think about being with Isaiah in the throne room or John in the throne room. It would put a crick in your neck, wouldn't it? 
from looking up like this. And your eyes would start to water because of the brilliant scene that is there. The holiness, the brightness, the whiteness of all that God is. And if I were to step into that room, I think the overriding feeling I would have would be this. I don't belong here. I'm in way over my head to be in the presence of God. I join Isaiah and John literally on the floor, covering my head and pleading for mercy. So it isn't God my pal that we're talking about here, is it? This is the God, the sovereign God of the universe who is overwhelming. God is in a class by himself. He is separated from us due to his exalted position and also by his moral perfection. His moral perfection, that's that next fill in there. If we were to stumble into Buckingham Palace, you couldn't do that because there'd be a few guards get you before then, or to stumble into the Oval Office, the same thing would happen. But if you could do that, soldiers everywhere, Secret Service standing everywhere, and maybe you'd hear the strains of songs like, God Save the King, or Hail to the Chief. But despite all the power and pomp and circumstance surrounding the first family and the royal family, they are anything but morally perfect. Matter of fact, they seem more to be the opposite of morally perfect. After centuries, there, there's been talk of closing down the monarchy in England, and part of it is because of the expense. But part of it is because of the embarrassing scandals that have been connected with the Windsor's family through the years. And scandals in our own government leaders have, have brought national embarrassment and a shame on our country. While we need to give them respect because of their position, it's hard to give much respect for their moral lives. And that makes it difficult, doesn't it? To separate the position from their morality, from their character. But just as God is separated from everyone else because of his exalted position, so he is separated from everyone else because of his moral perfection. God is holy. God is white. God is pure. God is undefiled. That's the attribute that most impressed the seraph angels in Isaiah 6. The 24 elders and the four living creatures in Revelation 4, they couldn't help but sing the refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This complete goodness is often illustrated by brilliant blinding light in contrast to darkness. We see that in 1 Timothy 6, 16. He makes his home in matchless, blinding, brilliant light that no one can approach. No mortal has ever seen him and no human can. 1 John 1.5, God is pure light, undimmed by darkness of any kind. God does not have a dark side. He doesn't have a hidden side to his character. It's always right. It's always bright. It's always perfect. One of the things that proved Jesus' deity was his moral perfection, his holiness. He lived in a human body for those 33 plus years here on earth. He experienced every limitation and every temptation that we do. 
And he impressed the multitudes by his teaching. And he impressed the multitudes by his miracles. But most impressive of all was his moral character. His moral character. There was never a dark side to it. When the angel first approached Mary, Gabriel first approached Mary to talk to her and tell her that she was going to have a baby. He said, the Holy Spirit will come to you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child developing inside you will be called the Son of God. Pilate, as he was judging Jesus, all of these charges were brought against Jesus by the crowds around. And his response after looking at the evidence was, he told the chief priests and the crowds, I don't find him guilty of anything. And then you remember those two thieves on the cross, one of them ridiculing him, the one defending him. And the one thief on the cross says to the other one, we deserve to die because we did wrong, but this man has done nothing wrong. Hebrews 4.15. We have a high priest who can feel it when we are weak and hurting. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but he did not sin. It's interesting that when men try to create gods for themselves, this moral perfection, this holiness is missing. The gods of Greek mythology stationed on Mount Olympus were always fighting among themselves. They were arguing about who was the greatest and who was the most powerful, who was the strongest or most beautiful. Their sexual exploits between themselves Earthly men and women were positively un, uh, obscene. These mythical gods were man's attempt to form a god in his own image, to make them kind of like us. And so kind of bringing God down to our level rather than ascending to the level of God. Psalm 24.3. You know this is part of the 23rd Psalm. He restores my soul, guiding me in the paths of righteousness so that his name may be glorified. A holy God can only lead in the path of righteousness. He can only do that. He can't lead in any other direction than that. No doubt about it, there is an enormous gap, a separation between the moral perfection of God and the sinfulness of mankind. It's impossible for a holy God to perform or tolerate any sinfulness. He either has to destroy the sinner or he has to destroy the sin. That's the nature of moral perfection. Habakkuk. There's a book you haven't read recently, I'll bet. Habakkuk 1.13. Your eyes are too holy to look at evil and you cannot stand the sight of people doing wrong. Psalm 11, 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord sits on his throne in heaven. He sees everything that happens. He watches people closely. The Lord examines those who are good and those who are wicked. He hates those who enjoy hurting others. He will make hot coals and burning sulfur fall like rain on the wicked. They will get nothing but a hot burning wind. The Lord always does what is right, and he loves seeing people do right. Those who live good lives 
will be with him. God despises sin in a way that doctors despise disease. The way that doctors despise cancer or HIV or COVID. And that hatred drives him to provide cleansing and cure. And that leads us from the essence of God's holiness to the expression of holiness. And the key word there is sanctification. There's a big Bible word for you. Sanctification. To sanctify, kind of following the same line, means to set apart. Just as holy means separate, to sanctify means to set apart, to cleanse, to make holy. Under the Mosaic law, God provided several temporary bridges between his holiness and man's sinfulness. Holiness was described by the Ten Commandments, so at least people would know uh, what sin and righteousness looks like. They would have a picture of that, what's right and what's wrong. The priesthood was established. By the way, the word priest means bridge. So a priest is a bridge builder between man and God, to be mediators between man and God. Sacrifices could be offered to atone for sin, to highlight the fact that there was a debt to be paid, to bridge this gap. This is a toll bridge that we got to go over, and very expensive. Detailed instructions for personal cleansing are found in Leviticus 11 through 15. Not some of your most exciting reading, by the way, in the whole Bible is the book of Leviticus, but it's still healthy to get there because God lays out things very specifically there. Feasts were established to celebrate the cleansing which God offered. The tabernacle and the temple were created to illustrate the holiness of God with the holy of holies separated by a what? By a veil, right? So separation again, so that it's pictured in the tabernacle and the temple. But all these actions and objects would become empty rituals unless something took place in the soul of the worshiper. They got beyond just the ritual of it. And somehow we need to be so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that we become devastated by the hideousness of our sin. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. When he found himself in God's presence, look at our passage again, verses 4 and 5. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This was without a doubt a traumatic conviction. A traumatic conviction. How many of you have ever been in an, an earthquake? Some of you have been in an earthquake? I mean, I don't mean a little earthquake. I'm talking Californians here, folks. All right. A real shaker involved. Several years ago, our staff from Greater Portland Bible Church, where I served for 28 years, we went to a conference in Mission Viejo, California. And I remember waking up about 5 in the morning, Sunday morning, and I thought I had the flu. I looked around, and the room was moving. But then I kind of came to, and I realized what was happening. Uh, we were on the 19th floor, by the way, of the Marriott Hotel. Just like that, and that's what I saw. Now, I grew up in California. I don't usually share that with people because I don't want any animosity coming my direction. But, 
But I know from growing up in California, the first thing you do in a real earthquake is you look for a door jam, right? A door jam, reinforcement, and you stand there. Okay, so I did that. I went to the, the door jam that led into the restroom there and uh, thought I would be a little bit safer. It's really interesting how people react differently in, an, in a thing like a big earthquake. And I had an opportunity, obviously, to interact with our staff. Our women's ministry director, as soon as the room started moving, she got up, packed her bags, went downstairs, and checked out of the hotel. <laughs> he said, I'm out of here. We have, uh, had one staff guy that was kind of a fun-loving guy, and he just kind of wrote it out like it was a ride on Disneyland. <laughs> oh, this is really cool. We had a really calm and cool and collected business administrator. I don't think he even woke up. Um, the worship pastor was the one that was most embarrassing because he got the deal about being in the door jam, but he went to the one between the hallway and his room, and uh, he stood out there, got locked out of his room, and let's just say he was underdressed. <laughs> but I want to tell you with all false modesty that I was level-headed. I was cool. And I was there, and I'm saying, well, I'm kind of awake now. I wonder if I should try to go back and get some more sleep or if I should just get up for the day, uh, get showered and changed and everything for the day, and maybe I'll catch an early breakfast downstairs. And so uh, that's what I decided to do, and just as I was coming out of the elevator, I met Joyce with her packed bags. And I said, Joyce, I'm kind of looking around to see if any of the restaurants in this hotel are open yet. She said, restaurants? We could have died. I don't care about eating. These are the people who don't take precautions. After all, I was raised in California. Ain't no big thing. Just an earthquake. I mean, we'll get over it, and everything will be just fine. And in the same way, sometimes when we deal with things in our life, it may be an overwhelming worship experience, or it may be a traumatic experience a health issue that we're going through, or whatever it may be. We've been through a lot of those things, and maybe we get a little nonchalant. Maybe God doesn't seem as holy anymore. Or we don't seem all that sinful. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, commits little boo-boos, but it's really no big thing. And we forget that one sin was enough to banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And we forget that one sin was enough to keep Moses from entering the promised land. And we forget that one sin, offending the holiness of God, caused Ananias and Sapphira their lives. Very possible for us to settle down in the spiritual suburbs, live kind of a comfortable life, resisting any challenge to greater growth or service. Then when God tries to get our attention, sometimes through a traumatic experience or maybe a moving worship time, uh, it just doesn't move us that much anymore. We just kind of play it cool. Hey, this will all pass. This will all pass. We'll get over this. We'll get around this. We'll be fine tomorrow or we'll be fine the next day. No big thing. I want to talk to some of you dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have maybe gotten complacent 
if not downright rebellious before God? What would it take to move us to tears? What would it take to move us to true brokenness before a holy God? Maybe if we went to a really inspiring concert. You know the kind with the smoke? And the sound system that makes the place kind of rumble? Maybe that would do it. Or maybe the devastating loss of our health or our job or a family member or our home or our investments. Whatever God allows in our lives, it's always meant to capture our attention and to continue the work of, here's that word again, sanctification. Sanctification. Making us holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Be holy now in everything you do, just as the Lord is holy, who invited you to be his child. He himself has said, you must be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews chapter 12, 9 through 11. Our fathers disciplined us as they thought best, yet God disciplines us for our own good so that we can become holy like him. We enjoy being disciplined. It always seems to cost more, cause more pain than joy. Later on. Those who learn from that discipline have peace that comes from doing what is right. Isaiah humbles himself before God in the midst of this trauma, and he experienced a fiery cleansing. A fiery cleansing. Now, take a moment and think about what we're seeing here. An angel. Now, let's read it. Verses 6 and 7. Read it again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Think about what that would be like, what it would feel like. An angel grabs a live coal, says he took it with tongs, but then evidently it ended up in his hand. I mean, that would raise one monster blister on me, right? takes the hot coal in his hand. This was not a ritual. It emphasized the greatness of his sin and the completeness of the cleansing. For a moment, Isaiah would think that the cure was far worse than the disease. It's important to understand that the atonement or payment was the animal that was offered on the altar, but the touching of the live coal on the prophet's lips drove home the point that cleansing is personal, and sometimes it can be very painful. Compare it to painful therapy, which often precedes emotional healing. I went in for uh, counseling several years ago. We were going through a situation with a son and uh, special challenges at church. So I went in to talk to a counselor about six months, every day, for, every uh, week for six months. And, you know, we're just kind of sitting there in his office. I didn't think too much about it. And, you know, I'm kind of talking about myself for all this time. The next day, I was wiped out. I was emotionally wiped out from the experience of just talking through the therapy. I guess that must mean that it was doing something. A few years ago, I had, uh, had to have rotator cuff surgery. Now, surgery now isn't too painful because they put you under, Right? And so you just take the juice and you're out and you wake up and everything is fine. 
And then that was followed by about six months of therapy. I had the nicest physical therapist. She was the sweetest gal who smiled every time she hurt me. <laughs> she stretched me in directions that I didn't want to be stretched when I was healthy, let alone coming off of this whole thing. But the reality is there's some pain involved in healing, right? There's pain involved when you go through some dark moments again in counseling, and there's pain involved when you're recovering from some kind of surgery. It's safe to say that while salvation is usually painless, sanctification rarely is. <laughs> Growing in Christ is rarely painless. This is especially true if you came to Christ as a child or as a teenager. Maybe you were brought up to believe certain things were true and then decided to take what we would consider a natural step of faith, praying a prayer, being baptized, whatever it was. If you came to Christ as an adult, it may have been a little bit more painful. Maybe you had to let go of some thinking patterns or even some sinful habits. Humbling yourself before God and people uh, with a childlike attitude, that can be a little uncomfortable at times if this is all unfamiliar to us. But sanctification, being made holy or Christ-like in our character, in our conduct, can be very difficult each step along the way. It may involve confrontation and reconciliation with people that you would rather ignore when you'd rather ignore the situation completely. In other words, you just gonna, you kind of want to write them off because they've been such a pain in your neck. And sanctification, growing at that point, may mean going back and revisiting that relationship. It may mean walking by faith and trusting God when everything seems to be falling apart around you and you don't want to respond, you want to react. You want to lash out, you want to be mad at somebody. And that sanctification that says, I need to respond and try to see what God is doing in my life as a result of this situation. That can be hard, painful. It often means standing alone for your faith and convictions in a hostile office, or even in a family environment, and that's not easy to do. Several years ago, a famous poet by the name of A. Anonymous, have you heard of him before? Okay. Wrote this great poem, and God knows what he's about. And I think it's worth reading here. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. I like this. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in your life and he knows what he's doing in my life. And I'm talking to some today. Maybe you can almost feel your mouth burning 
Because God is doing some cleansing work in you, and maybe even has to do with the mouth. Some impurity, some unholiness in, unholiness in your life. The blood of Jesus Christ is totally atoned for your sins, so don't confuse this painful process with penance. But in order to make you more like Jesus, there will be some fiery cleansing along the way, some kind. Whatever God touches, he's holy. Whatever God touches, he cleanses. Whatever God touches, he cleanses. And he sanctifies. A holy God can only do what's right. He can only do what's healthy. He can only do what's good and helpful for us. And that leads us to a final aspect of this most prominent of God's attributes, which is the expectation of his holiness, and that's the word submission. Submission. The outward working or outcome of true holiness will be seen in our progressive submission to his will, I think, in these two areas. The first is heartfelt worship. After that dramatic Traumatic encounter with the most holy God. I'm sure Isaiah never went through a worship event in a nonchalant way. I don't think he ever went through a worship experience on autopilot again. Every verse of holy, holy, holy. And by the way, we're going to sing that song after this message is over. Those words are significant. Every verse must have brought back that dazzling vision of God on the throne surrounded by the angels. No one had to give him permission to kneel. Nobody had to get, the worship leader didn't have to stand. Now, if you'd like to kneel, feel free. I mean, he just hit the deck. He just hit the deck. He couldn't do anything else but that. Looking at the coals on the altar of sacrifice must have made his lips burn again as he offered prayer and praise to God. Do you know what our highest calling is as believers? It's to be worshipers. Our, our highest calling as believers, as Christians, is to be worshipers of God. Now, by that, I'm not talking about connoisseurs who come in and kind of, you know, take notes on the service. Okay, Kendra, <clears throat> how are the songs that she did today? Dana, how'd you do on the piano? Okay, we'll kind of rate that. Is that my style of music? You know, were the drums too loud? Um, you know, was the room too hot or too cold or, you know... That's a different type of thing. The sermon too long. Of course not. It can't be long enough. I'm not talking about being a connoisseur of worship in that way. But I want to be a worshiper. Sometimes when we come to a worship event, we feel kind of distracted from the worship experience. And there may be some reasons for that. Maybe you've never really been born again. Never really placed your trust in Jesus Christ, and because of that, a lot of it doesn't make much sense. The solution to this, of course, is to make a commitment to Jesus, right? To invite him to come into your heart, because that's the first thing he's going to do. He's going to turn us increasingly into worshipers. Maybe you're harboring some resentment against somebody that you need to forgive, or from whom you need forgiveness. We've got real practical instructions here in Matthew chapter 5. It says, if you enter your place of worship about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right, then and only then come back and work things out with God. 
So there may be something hindering the worship because there's something unresolved in a relationship. Now, it doesn't mean we've got the power to make everything right, but at least the effort is being made, right? To do it. And it needs to be, give attention to that. Another reason why we can feel kind of de- detached in the worship experience is that we're resisting the deeper working of God. What we've been talking about here today, and that's sanctification. Wanting to keep him kind of at arm's length, afraid to deal with some area of rebellion or pride. And the solution, of course, is to humble ourselves before God, praying and confessing and praising him by faith in response to the word, sometimes saying, God, it's not that I feel this, but I need to do this by faith. By faith. I need to take the steps that are necessary so that you can do the deeper work in my life. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, we should never stop offering our sacrifice to God. That sacrifice is our praise coming from lips that speak his name. I love the concept of worship being sacrifice and the sacrifice of the lips. What that means is that we engage in praise when we don't feel like it. We engage in these things when we don't feel like it. So it's not a matter of waiting for the feeling to come and then we'll do it. It's a matter of doing it and then trusting God that the emotions are are come at the right time. Can you imagine what this service or any worship service would be if everyone in the room was a heartfelt worshiper? I mean, fully engaged in worship, like Isaiah. Can you imagine the impact on seekers just kind of stumbling into a place like this in a room full of heartfelt worshipers? I think one of two things would happen. It would either have them running out the doors early because they couldn't handle it. Those people are weird. Those people are just too far out. I can't relate to them at all. Or it would draw them to him. When we were in... um, where were we? One of our New York churches. And we uh, invited our landlady to come to church. She hadn't been to church in years. And after church, uh, we took her out to, to lunch. I said, Ed, you're a newcomer. Give us a totally outside impression of our, the service that you went through today. She said, I was blown away by people raising their hands in worship to God, the intensity of it really impressed her. She saw something real, not ritual, but real in that. I'm going to close with one more obvious evidence of our submission to a holy God, and that's humble service. As the worship experience came to a close, the Lord offered an invitation, right? Verse 8. Rob read it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Interesting enough, you're in a worship service, like Isaiah was, and there was only one person in the audience. Isaiah. (laughs) And then the invitation comes, and God says, Um, I have a mission. Do I have any volunteers? What else is Isaiah going to (laughs) say? No place else to look. 
Only one person. It's like being the only person at a missions conference. And they're talking about the needs of the world. And the, and the great speaker says, anybody in the room like you <laughs> that would be willing to take on this assignment. But Isaiah didn't need to be coaxed. He didn't need to think about it or even pray about it. When it's right, you just do it. And it was a tough assignment. You read through Isaiah and you find, you know what the assignment was? He was to preach to the nation of Israel about their sin to get them to turn back to God. And God said at the beginning, oh, this is the motivation. They won't listen to you. They won't respond to you. They won't respond to your message. And we might say, God, why do we go through it? You know why? He needed it for the record. And he also needed it because it wasn't just about this generation. It was about future generations who would turn to this book of Isaiah and have their lives changed as they read about this man's encounter with a holy God. This is a very hard word. Every generation, even especially in the 21st century, because that kind of commitment seems unreasonable because we're much more concerned about comfort and convenience. And so when God calls us, he gets our voicemail. Y'all have voicemail on your phones? He gets the voicemail. And we give him that recorded message. (laughs) I'll get back to you at my convenience. I'll get back to you when I have time. Sometime, God, I'll get back to you. Leave your number after the tone. If we do commit to some ministry, inside or outside the church, sometimes we come in and we want certain things connected with that ministry. We want appreciation. We want people telling us what a great job we're doing. And we want cooperation. We want people to join us in this whole thing. And we, mu- we want some kind of compensation. Um, and of course, we want success. God, I will do these things for you if I can have these uh, accoutrements on the side. I want to be successful. I want people to like me. I want people to appreciate me. I want people to pat me on the back. And I'll be glad to do that. And if that doesn't come, I don't have to take this. I don't have to do this. I've got other things that I can be investing in rather than just wasting my time serving God. And that's what it seems like, a waste of time and energy. Unless we're worshipers. And then when the call comes, we just say, God, it's as if there's nobody else in the room. Dear Christian, I want want you to look at these questions. Very important questions as I wrap up this message on God's holiness. Whom are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving the living God? Where are you serving? Let's get specific. What is your assignment? What is your assignment? And God is giving every one of us an assignment. Some of us may have a few of them. If you had a genuine encounter with our holy God, there's only one appropriate response. Here, here, God's calling, calling roll, and there's only one of us in the room. Here, 
Send me. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus, we've tried to ascend into the lofties today. And it's hard to do. We didn't have a lot of flashy effects. Except those created by your word and created by the experience of Isaiah and others. But Lord, to be aware of the fact that not only are you holy, you want to make us holy. You want to separate us to yourself and to your mission. Lord, I pray that especially whoever in this room needs this message today would hear it not as from me, but as from you. Because you are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen.